if you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to look with me this morning into the book of Job. We're looking at that book together this morning. Uh, if you're just visiting with us, we are in a journey through the Bible this year, looking at the Bible as a four-part story in which the four parts of the Bible are creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. So unless you understand those four parts to the Bible, you won't really understand the story of Scripture at all. And the last week and this week and next week, we'll get back into basically following the chronology. But last week and this week, we're looking at the wisdom part of the scriptures. And Schuyler nailed it last week. Uh, the wisdom uh, parts of the Bible shine a spotlight on how we live into the four-part story. You might remember he preached from Ecclesiastes last week. So this week we're looking at the book of Job. I know it's way up there on your list of thinking about resurrection passages. I know, I know. And it, it, um, it, just in case you're really upset about whether or not I'm going to talk about the resurrection, just hang in there. Give me two out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, just hang in there. Hang in there. Get, be open to thinking about the book of Job this morning. That's all I'm asking. So we're looking at the book of Job. And um, um, before I read, I need to communicate this to you about looking at Job. If you assume that you deserve a good life, you will not understand Job, you won't understand uh, the four-part story, and you don't understand the power of the resurrection. So when we start thinking about Job, just it's gonna challenge whether or not you assume that you think you deserve a good life. Just wanna say that to you from the outset. It's a matter of honesty. All right. Well, let me read some excerpts from Job chapter 1 and 2. Listen to this. Uh, this is the word of God. This, these things really happened. Job is actually one of the oldest books we have in the Bible, one of the oldest ones. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and, a very many, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. 
and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him, destroy him without reason. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Sounds like a great uplifting story, doesn't it? Well, let's ask God. Let's ask him to help us. Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you, Jesus, that you have said that not one little letter of this book shall fade away, that your truth remains forever. The grass comes and goes, moth and rust destroy lots of things, but none of those can touch your word. So we ask that as we gather here today to worship you, that you would teach us truth, impress upon us, Lord, that we shouldn't be accepting and assuming that we should live an easy life, that we shouldn't be thinking that everything is just going to be great. But what we should be assuming is that you are great, and you are the God of love and compassion and care, the God who provides for his people. So, Lord, fill our hearts, our minds, our whole lives with truth. Shape us with the truth, we pray. And Holy Spirit, we ask that we would see Jesus. And in beholding you, Jesus, may we give ourselves to you afresh, anew, again. We pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. We are not 
in control. But oftentimes it takes suffering to come into our lives for us to realize that we are not in control. This whole story of Job is telling us that we are not in control, but God is. And what I want you to know as we look at this book together is this. If there is another way, Lord, let's do that. But if not, I trust you because I know this is not the end. Lord, if there's another way, let's do that. But if not, I trust you because I know this is not the end. This morning when we look at the book of Job, that's the point. We got one story, two must-hears, three facts, and four takeaways. One, two, three, four. Got it? So when you leave here, one, the one, two, three, fours of Job. How about that? One story. Let's jump in. There was a guy named Job, as it starts out in verse 1. He was a blameless man. He was an upright man. He was a man that was in awe of God, and he fought against evil. It doesn't mean that Job was without sin. You can read all 42 chapters and find out that Job was willing to admit his wrongs and his shortcomings and his failings and his rebellions and his own self-righteousness and his own defensiveness. Job was not a man without sin. He was a man that lived with full integrity. He was a man that lived honestly. That included being willing to acknowledge his own shortcomings and failings. He was a man who loved God. He was a man that was incredibly wealthy and prosperous, not because of his own doing. It was because of what God had given him. And we read together, Job's life had, it was incredibly tragic in many ways. Did you catch it when we read? He lost his entire family. He lost his livelihood. He lost his business. He lost everything. He lost it all. And it didn't happen because he died uh, of old age and natural causes. All of this happened to him in waves. It didn't even come at the same time. How many messengers came to Job? Job, this happened over here in this part of your property, and I alone have lived to tell you. And while he was speaking, someone else came and said, Job, this happened over here. And I alone have lived to tell you. And then someone else. And then someone else. Do you catch the gravity and the weight of that? Here is a guy who faced tragedy wave after wave after wave after wave. And he was absolutely devastated. To the point that he tore his clothes, shaved his head, and worshipped. Not tore his clothes, shaved his head, and ran. Tore his clothes, shaved his head, and worshiped. Gathered himself into the presence of God. And oh, by the way, even though he lost everything, he still had his wife. And she was right there with him. And guess what her advice was? Curse God and die. How about that? Don't you hope that you can be that kind of spouse one day? <laughs> the one that you love is really in going through something hard and difficult 
and your immediate response, at least the one that's recorded is, I just think you should curse God and die, Job. (laughs) Then his friends show up, which we didn't read, but if you look at the end of chapter two, you'll find this. He's got three friends that come to him. And as they were traveling to see Job, they could see him from a distance and they could see that he was hardly recognizable as himself. So guess what they did? They came to Job and they sat with him for seven days. They didn't say a word to him for seven days. How many of us are prone when we know someone that we care about is in trouble, we want to come and immediately start answering? Anybody anybody struggle with that? Someone that you know is in a, tight, as a difficult, tight spot, and you come immediately like, well, I'll tell you what to do. We have almost no concept of just entering into someone's life and just sitting there and waiting just to be present. Well, these three friends were there seven days and didn't say a word. And then they opened up their mouth, and from chapter 3 to chapter 37, they engaged Job in all kinds of philosophical, theological argumentation. And let me tell you, parts of what they said was absolutely true, incontrovertibly true. But it was kind of a half-truth. In Job's responses in chapters 3 through 37, Job had the right answer. But man, he was unconvincing. If you go back and read chapters 3 through 37, this is what you'll find. Job's friends had a bad case argued in expert manner. And Job had a really strong case that was argued very, very poorly. Well, that's the story. Now, two must-hears. That means I really need you to hear this. Really do. Like, I want you to hear Jesus. That's most important. But just under that this morning is the two things I'm about to tell you. Number one, we're going to be very direct this morning. Just want to tell you that. Truth, that the must hear, number one, I, we're going to be very direct in looking at this book today. And the second of the must hears is this. I know that there are those of you here who are going through a lot. Whether it's fresh sorrow, whether it is chronic pain, whether it is as you look at your life from the vantage point that you're in right now, this day, what you see in the future looks pretty dark. I get it. And I need you to hear me say, This is not a book that's telling you, deal with it. Get over it. This is not, this is not, wow, Job has it so much worse than I do. Therefore, I need to suck it up. Don't de-dignify yourself that way. When you're going through something and it's really difficult and hard, You have the right as the person who is experiencing it to express that. Do not go through something difficult and reason in your own mind, well, man, at least this isn't as bad as Job. I'm not that bad. Don't do that to yourself. 
sit in how difficult it is and try to struggle to find ways to express that and do that through the lens of the gospel. But don't de-dignify yourself by comparison then shaming yourself into feeling better, doing better. Don't do that. In other words, what I'm saying is, yes, we're going to be direct, but I need you to hear me say, I know that there are those of you who are going through a lot. And if I were to talk with you privately, it would be a lot more nuanced than what I'm going to say here. You get it? So I don't want you to hear this when you're going through something hard. I don't want you to hear this and think, well, Dave just basically saying Job's telling me to suck it up. Because that's not it at all. And if I were to speak with you privately, I'd be much more cautious, much more nuanced, much more specific to your situation. And I need you to hear me say that. Because I know when you get down, I know when things are hard, you don't always hear things the way that they're intended. Guess what? I've been there. Three. One story, two must-hears, three facts. The first is the fact about our great enemy, Satan. Wow. Can you go back and read this, or maybe you heard some of it here? <laughs> wow, Satan, Satan comes on the scene, and we, it's an extraordinary moment, okay? It's an extraordinary moment when the, the angels, the sons of God, the angels come before God, and Satan is with them. It's an extraordinary moment when they're in this conversation, and all of a sudden, Satan comes out, and, and God asks him, what's he been doing? He's like, well, I've been roaming around, walking up and down on the earth, uh, just checking people out. This is an extraordinary moment. Because what we find out is not only what Satan thinks, but we find out what he believes. If you look at verse 9 of chapter 1, this is incredibly powerful. This is what Satan believes. He doesn't believe that there is genuine love in the world. What he thinks is, of course Job is great. Don't you see the kind of life he's living? In other words... He thinks of life as people just use each other to get what they want. And as long as people are with God and God gives them what they want, everything's great. He doesn't believe in genuine love. He doesn't believe in sacrificial love. He doesn't believe that someone would give something to someone else out of unconditional, genuine love. He thinks that the whole purpose of interaction between human beings and the whole purpose of interaction between God and human beings is that we use God to get what we want, and God's fine with that. That's what he believes. So if you've ever been under any teaching that has presented Christianity as obey God and he'll give you this, I am so sorry, because that is actually more demonic that is coming from a place in which you don't understand the love of God that is full and free. That is not based on what we do. Because if it were, if it was based on what we did, we'd all be in trouble. You get it? This is telling us something profound about our great enemy. Hold on to that. This tells us something about God. That God is in absolute control. God's in control. Don't forget, God made the world. And when he made the world, it was 
good. It was good. But then rebellion came into the world. And because we, yes, I mean that literally, we sinned against God in the garden. That's what the Bible teaches in Romans 5 and throughout Scripture. We were there and we made the mistake. Adam and Eve were our representatives and we sinned in them. And by doing that, we brought death and disease, we brought discomfort, we brought every hideous thing that is in the world, everything that is broken, everything that is messed up is because of what we did in the garden when we rebelled against God. And you know what that means? It means that the world is um, beautiful and dangerous, really dangerous. It means that living in the world and life in the world is untamable. It means that life and living in the world is not perfectly or comprehensively knowable. It means that there is order to the world and there is chaos. It means that things don't always make sense anymore because that's what happens when you rebel. That's what happens when disease enters the world and death. It doesn't make any sense at all. And that means that all of us have to come to grips with this every single day in every single situation. Because even though God created good, man, we injected poison into everything and now it's just confusing at times and dangerous. And yeah, I still see order, but man, there's an awful lot of chaos. And it certainly seems like things are just untamable everywhere. The third fact is Job himself. Job, uh, he never gets a full explanation for why things happened in his life. God never explains every little detail to him. He never understands the whole reason why. And I'm not here today because I can tell you the answer. Those are three facts. Well, let's get into the four takeaways. Let's start with the burning question. Here's the burning question that might be on your mind. You might have wrestled with this. You might have in the past, but it still comes up every now and then. Here's the burning question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Friends, let me tell you, it's only happened once in the history of the world, and his name was Jesus. In other words, you need to understand that this story is showing us that God, God is proving Satan wrong. Remember, Satan thinks that people love one another and serve one another for what they can get from them. It's the way God works. It's the way we work with each other. And you need to remember, especially on the day like today when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, like we do the other 52 weeks of the year, that Jesus loved you and died for you and loved me and died for me not because he could get anything out of me. 
Not because he saw what I would do. Not because he saw I would believe. Not because he saw that I would go in the ministry. Not because he saw I would do this. Not because he saw I would do that. He loved me not for what he could get out of me. Let me try to make more sense of that. Jesus died for me. He rose from the dead for me. And he loved me because he loved me. He loves you because he loves you. Jesus has never looked at my work ethic and thought, wow, that's pretty challenging. Jesus has never looked at my marriage and thought, you know what? I need to apply that in my relationship with my bride, the church. Jesus has never looked at my move to Greenville, North Carolina and thought, oh, finally, now the church is going to be so much better. Jesus has never looked at my life and thought, wow, Dave really taught me something today. Beloved, what I'm saying to you is work that out in your own life. Stop thinking that you can fulfill your job and take care of your calling and that you can fill out your mission to make the world a better place. Jesus loves you because he loves you, not because of what he can get out of you, not because of what you think you can accomplish. Stop trying to write out and live out your mission and live his, in which he's the one who is completely sovereign and he even makes your mistakes turn out for good. And he even gives you grace to obey and follow and he even gives you wisdom to figure stuff out when you can't. So don't ever think that Jesus loved you because he thought he could get something out of you. Because I'm telling you, there's never been a day where he has looked at me and thought, wow, I am sure glad that Dave was in my life, even though I know he loves me. I haven't added anything to him. The next thing is the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. You see, it's not just that God proves Satan wrong. It's, it's more than that. God actually allows suffering to do the opposite of what Satan thinks will happen. Satan thinks, you know what? We're going to give Job all these problems and take things away, and then he's going to stop believing you. Maybe he'll follow his wife's advice and curse you and die. But the way God uses suffering is to detach us from things that are temporal, that won't last, so that we would be anchored in what is most true, which is what he says about us through Jesus. So that when we have success in our jobs, we can take it or leave it. So that when we fail spectacularly at our jobs, it doesn't devastate us. So that we can make an enormous amount of money and we're not tied to it as if it is our security. So that we can make an enormous amount of money and lose it and we're still the same person. You see, what God does with suffering is he detaches us from the things that we have a tendency to build our life around. 
And by bringing suffering into our lives, it helps us cling to what is actually most true. And what is most true about us is what God says that he's done for us by grace through Jesus. So that God becomes larger in our lives and we identify more clearly the areas in our lives that we build our identity around that can't compare to Jesus. So that whether we make a ton of money or whether we don't, it doesn't really matter to us that much. So that whether we uh, have prestigious jobs or whether we can't stand our job, eh, it's not the most important thing. Because God is becoming larger in our lives. And that's how he uses suffering. To make us cling more tightly to him. And understand more and more of who he is. And his power and his grace. And what he wants for us. Which means we have to avoid simplistic explanations of suffering. You know the simplistic ones that are things like this? Well, it means God's mad at you. Just flush that. Just, just flush it. Stop. D- d- don't go to those simplistic explanations. If your heart is attached to one of these, man, I'm happy to talk with you about it and if you want to in private. Don't get caught up in these simplistic explanations. They're just not true. That God's mad uh, or it proves that there's no God or that he's not all powerful or not all loving See, those just assume that we are standing in this supreme vantage point from which we can see everything that's going on and all that God is doing. And that is an incredibly arrogant position to be in. Avoid those simplistic explanations. Our God is doing so many more things than we can even fathom. Next, Job's life, this is the third takeaway. Job's life shows us the relationship between the four-part story and suffering. Job's life illustrates for us and shows us the relationship between the four-part story, creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration, and suffering. If you go to the end of the book, what you'll find is that God restores all these things to Job. Family, his job, everything. God restores it all to him. And it's not as a reward. So I would just encourage you that you've been taught that it's a reward. It's not. It's not what it says. Matter of fact, it's not even most important. What is staggering when you read through this book is how Job talks about what he went through. Remember, Job's story shows us the connection between the four-part story and suffering. We read chapter one. What does Job say when he lost everything? Chapter one, verse 21. Naked in, naked out. Who does he see himself as? A creature before the incredible creator of the universe. He sees himself as a dependent creature who brought nothing and takes nothing. Matter of fact, if you look in chapter 13, 
You'll find that, jo that Job even says this, though he slay me, yet I will serve him or worship him or honor him. In other words, no matter the circumstances in Job's life, no matter what's going on in his life, he is going to strive to honor God through the midst of suffering and loss and hardship. He even says to his wife, shall we not honor God for good and, and also ill? When hard things come, should we not honor God just when we praise him when good things are happening? As a matter of fact, Job, if you look in the first part of the chapter, when he knows that his kids are out and they're partying and they're having a good time and he supports that, he goes out and offers sacrifices for them. And he does the same thing at the end of the book when God tells him to do it for his friends. Job understands not only that he was created as a dependent creature before Almighty God, not only that God is to be honored no matter the circumstances, he understands that his entire relationship with God is based based on sacrifice, that something had to die in his place. And you know what all those sacrifices were pointing to in the Old Testament? It's the J word, Jesus. He understood that something had to die in his place in order for him to have relationship with God, to grow in relationship with God. And did this mean that Job didn't cry? Of course not. The man shaved his head and ripped his clothes off and didn't say anything for seven days. You think he was devastated? And God says, in all that Job did, he didn't sin. In other words, when you're suffering and down and out, oh my goodness, it's time to get real. Talk about what's going on in your life. Stop trying to stuff it down. Stop trying to rationalize it in your mind. Stop comparing yourself to other people as if to say, just by thinking that they had it worse than you, that you're going to be fine. Embrace what God has put into your life and go to him. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It is not easy to love God when things are hard and when things are easy, is it? And not only does Job see himself as a creature before the creator, not only is he striving to honor God no matter the circumstance, not only does he see that he has to come to God through sacrifice, he also says this in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I will see God. That's Job chapter 19, starting around verse 25. Beloved, one of the oldest books in the Bible is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He knows that he will see God in the flesh. He knows that a time is coming in which all things will be made right. He knows the time is coming in which Jesus will return and all will be made new. And that means this. This is the fourth of four takeaways. Here's the last word on Job. If you look in the book of James, you'll find that in chapter five, around verse 11, James starts talking about Job. 
And what's so interesting is that if you read chapter 5, verse 11 and following, it seems like James has just been having a conversation with his brother. Do you know who his brother is? The J word again. Jesus. And it's as if James had just finished reading the book of Job. And he starts talking to the churches as if he's been talking to Jesus. And he's like, do you remember the steadfastness of Job? Oh, that doesn't say that Job is not a sinner. It's saying that Job was someone who was steadfast. He remained. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of honesty. He was a man that was who he was before God and nothing more. There was no pretense. There was no cover-up. What you find in the book of Job is that he was a guy who was sincere and honest and viewed himself in relationship to God through thick and thin, highs and lows, difficult things and joys. And he remained steadfast. He didn't believe because he thought God would give him a better life. He believed in God because he had nothing else. And God was preeminently supreme. And not only does James say that, do you remember Job, how he was steadfast? It goes on to say, and don't forget the purpose of the Lord, to be merciful and to show compassion. In other words, the final word on Job is that the whole book is showing us how compassionate God is and how merciful God is. That it's in God alone that we find our hope and security It's in God alone that we can endure hardship. There's no other way to deal with hardship and suffering other than with God. Not only because Jesus suffered and therefore we relate to him and he relates to us in our suffering, but it's just because we understand new levels of God's compassion and mercy. Which leads us to this. Lord, if there's another way, let's do that. But if not, I trust you because I know this isn't the end. 